welcome to the Ian Abernethy podcast. In this podcast, we're going to be discussing what makes a technique a karate technique. Hello everyone, I'm Ian Abernethy and thank you for joining me on uh, this edition of the podcast. Uh, as you've just heard, this month we're going to discuss uh, what makes a technique a karate technique. Uh, before we get into that, just a quick bit of news, I've just got one main item really. And uh, for those who don't know, a few weeks ago I was uh, waiting for a plane in Paris, France. And I had the idea that maybe we should have a collective look at certain kata sequences. So I pulled out my iPad, got a Wi-Fi signal, put my initial thought online, and it seems to have been wildly popular, judging by the response on the website and Facebook and Twitter. So for those, again, who don't know, what we asked for was suggestions of which cut sequence you'd like to look at. Uh, people were encouraged to uh, click like or you know write which ones they wanted to see. We took the most popular three, which were the opening of Basai Shore, the opening of Cypher Cutter and uh, the stamping kicks with the forearm movement in the Shotokan version of Hian Shodan. And we put those three up to a vote. And the winner was the beginning sequence of Cypher. So what we are going to do, if you go along to ianabernethy.com, look in the Cutter application section of the forum, you can see it there. You can also find it on the Facebook page. Um, if you have any ideas at all that you would like to share about the opening sequence of Cypher, if, even if it's a cut that you don't do, if you want to pop along to the website, look at the videos and, and put forward your best ideas, what we're hoping to do is end up with a, like a video library where there's lots of us have contributed to say, well, this is what we think is going on. Uh, we've got some rules around that, and hopefully the idea is it provides a good resource for everybody. And it also enables those who have good ideas about Katabunkai, and I know there's a lot out there, I know that from my, my travels, but who maybe don't have a voice and aren't able to get heard above the noise, it gives you a chance to kind of showcase your thinking and, and, and what you do as well. And above all else, it'll hopefully be a bit of fun. So if it goes well, which it seems to be doing so far, the plan is every six to eight weeks we'll do another one. Uh, obviously, the rules being that if we've done one sequence, we'll ban that one again. So we're going to do the beginning of Cypher this time. Uh, next time, we'll we'll do something else and we'll uh, apply the same uh, democratic process. So if you pop along to ianabernethy.com, click on the forum, go to the Catra application uh, section, uh, you'll see it there, and I'm going to embed all the videos and stuff. And, uh, and and as you'll see, there's some rules there. It doesn't matter how good the quality is or what style you practice. You don't need fancy editing or anything else. Just upload it to YouTube, and then we'll embed it, and away we go. So I hope that's something that uh, you find of interest and you think that'll be of uh, benefit to our uh, practical karate, bunkai-based community. Um, okay, so let's talk about what makes a technique a karate technique. Uh, I hope you enjoy the, uh, the main meat of this month's podcast. In this podcast, I wish to discuss what constitutes a karate technique. Or in other words, what makes a technique part of karate. The idea for this podcast came from a discussion I had after demonstrating a, a technique at a seminar. 
So while the efficiency and effectiveness of the technique was not disputed, what was questioned was whether that particular technique was a karate technique. Now, from my position, it definitely was a part of karate, but for the participant, it was a technique that he had seen previously in the Filipino martial arts, and therefore, to him, the technique belonged to that art and not to karate. Now, while this may seem like one of those pedantic discussions that are so prevalent in the martial arts, I would suggest it's an important question that can have a huge impact on how karate is practiced today and the future course it will take. Our discussion of this topic will also allow us to look at the relationships that exist between the various martial arts and for us to tackle that long-existing martial myth of the unique origin of technique. Uh, to start us off, we should probably have a look at uh, techniques that are pretty much universally acknowledged as being karate techniques. Now, if I were to list things like lunging punches, reverse punches, front kicks, knife hands, palm heels, side kicks, and so on, then there's uh, likely to be little dispute that they are core karate techniques. But of course, they also exist in other systems as well, but the fact that they are found throughout the traditional kata of karate would safely secure their place as karate techniques. However, this immediately throws up two questions. Firstly, what of those techniques that are not found within kata, but are practiced within the majority of karate dojo? Secondly, what of those techniques which do exist in kata, but are not practiced in the majority of karate dojo? So we'll discuss um, these two sets of techniques in turn. So as an example of a technique that is not found within traditional kata, but is nevertheless regarded as being a quintessential karate technique, the roundhouse kick would seem to be the one to look at, you know, Mawashi Geri. It's a t technique that's practiced in almost every karate dojo, and yet, as its absence from the traditional kata shows, it hasn't always been part of karate practice. Shin kicks, side kicks to the knees, stamping kicks and so on can be seen throughout the traditional kata, but roundhouse kick is nowhere to be found. Now, at this point, probably should mention that some of the traditional kata have been modified by various people to include roundhouse kick, but these changes have generally not found favour, and in most cases, they've been changed back. You know, some modern kata have also been created to ensure roundhouse kick has its place within kata. But regardless, you know, there was a time when roundhouse kick was not a part of karate, but it is now. You know, so what happened? <laughs> I mean, one thing we can probably all agree on is that roundhouse kick is highly effective and very versatile. Uh, Steve Williams, my partner in the Extreme Impact Downloads, he describes uh, roundhouse kick as the king of kicks, and that's something I'd, I'd certainly agree with. Context is always of prime importance, of course, and I would say that at close range, where the enemy may very well have a grip on you, front kicks the knees and shins, Side kicks to the knees and stamps to the feet and legs are most applicable. It's hard, it's not impossible, but it's hard for a roundhouse kick to have a definitive effect when you're clinched with the enemy. It's probably for this reason that roundhouse kick is not found within the kata, where the overriding objective is that of civilian self-protection. However, when we get a little space, then roundhouse kick really comes into its own in both self-protection and consensual fighting. Now, at the time roundhouse kick became part of karate, there is no doubt that the emphasis had started to shift somewhat from self-protection to karate versus karate consensual duels. Roundhouse kick, therefore, would find itself with an ever greater role to play. It therefore becomes adopted into practice and given a fairly prominent role.
Now, that evolution continues, of course, in Karateka versus Karateka competition. It's not too long before the once novel roundhouse kick becomes everyday. So the reverse roundhouse kick, or hook kick, develops, and that becomes part of karate practice. Again, most would regard the hook kick as a karate technique. And that is not because it's been part of karate from the very beginning, because it wasn't. It's because it has been adapted into practice, because it has been found useful within a given context. Um, as a quick aside, I feel that roundhouse kick is very versatile and useful in a number of contexts. However, I feel that hook kick's use is limited almost exclusively to competition. Um, and even then, I'd say while there are some gifted individuals that can generate knockout power with a, with a hook kick, for most, it would only be suitable for points competition as opposed to for full contact formats. Um, and because of the emphasis on my particular take on karate, hook kick is not a technique on our syllabus. Um, so when I started in karate training, the hook kick wasn't part of practice. Um, it was added uh, later on because obviously it started to become more popular in competition and then it became part of grading requirements. Uh, but when I formed my own group, the technique did not fit with our objectives. So it was abandoned in order to give more training time for those methods that were more conducive to our training goals. So for us, you know, hook kick isn't, <laughs> isn't a karate technique, at least it's not part of our karate. I mean, there are loads of other examples of methods finding their way into karate that are now regarded as core techniques. I mean, punching with a guard up is another obvious example. In the past, it was accepted that at close range, the hands are best employed proactively so that they can locate the head in the chaos of conflict, so that they can clear the enemy's limbs and um, out of the path of any strike, and so that they can grapple and control. Uh, both hands are always active as opposed to being inactive in a passive guard. You know, never have a dead hand, as Motobu once said. I mean, pulling the hand to the hip with nothing in it is a very good example of a dead hand, of course. But that's a modern misunderstanding around the nature of hikate, or the, the pulling hand. Um, and it should not be seen as a traditional method. It's a bad habit resulting in a pseudo-tradition where people are trying to utilise close-range motions at long range. The hands should always be active at close range and never passive. They should be generating definitive combative advantage and not passively doing nothing, awaiting the possibility of getting in the way of one of the enemy's strikes. They should be facilitating our strikes. However, when karate starts to add fighting at a distance into its skill set, guards now have an important role to play. Now, you simply don't see any guards in traditional kata because they're largely irrelevant to the nature of conflict katas were designed to address. However, I would say that being able to maintain a good guard, if you're in a position where the hands haven't yet engaged, has been a very positive development for karate. Mainly from a fighting perspective, but also from a self-protection perspective. Uh, so long as training doesn't condition us to cling to a guard when the hands uh, could be active in more uh, proactive and um, productive ways. Now, no one would think twice if they saw roundhouse kicks, hook kicks, punching with a guard up and so on in, in a modern karate dojo. Um, however, these techniques were not a part of karate in the past. So that can lead us to our first conclusion. Techniques which were not part of karate can be adapted into karate and can become core karate techniques. Now, having discussed techniques that are not in the kata, 
but which are practiced in most karate dojo. Let's now have a look at the other side of the coin. So what about those techniques which exist in kata, but are not practiced in the majority of karate dojo? I mean, throws would be a good example of this. Uh, within the karate kata, we can find a great many throws. However, it would be fair to say that throws are not practiced in the majority of karate dojo. In his uh, master text, Gichin Funakoshi tells us that throws and joint locks are an important part of karate, and he shows a number of them. So I say it was in that 1935 book, Karate Do Kyohan, Gichin Funakoshi wrote, uh, In karate, hitting, thrusting and kicking are not the only methods. Throwing techniques and pressure against joints are also included. He later goes on that all of these techniques should be studied referring to basic kata. Funakoshi also makes direct reference to two of the throws covered been found in kata, namely Basai Dai or Pasai and uh, Nahanshi slash Teki Shodan. Of course, we all know that throws generally fell out of favour, and the first that, to my knowledge, noticed this shift was Kenwa Mabuni, the founder of Shitoru. So in the 1930s, Mabuni wrote, um, The karate that has been taught in Tokyo is incomplete. People are starting to think that throws and locks can only be found in judo and jujitsu, and this can only be put down to a lack of understanding. Those who are thinking of the future of karate should keep an open mind and strive to study the complete martial art. I mean, there are other examples as well. Um, in his book, uh, the, uh, the History of Karate, Okinawan Gojuru, uh, Moria Higana tells us that uh, there was a meeting in the 1930s between uh, Kano, the founder of judo, and uh, Miyagi, the founder of uh, Gojuru karate, during which they discussed uh, grappling and groundwork. So from, uh, from the book, um, he, he says, um, When they spoke later, Kano-sensei asked, Are there niwaza, which is ground-fighting techniques, Are there niwaza in karate? Miyagi explained that there were, along with uh, nagiwaza, shimiwaza, and uh, gakuwaza, which is throwing techniques, choking techniques, and joint-locking techniques. He then demonstrated some examples explaining the continual importance of harmonizing and focusing the breath. Kano was impressed to find that karate was much more than just punching and kicking techniques, but that it encompassed the depth of a complete martial art. So, I mean, you know, that's yet more evidence, albeit of a secondary nature, that the karate of old contained grappling and throwing methods, which are generally not practiced today. I mean, there's some pretty recent references as well. So, um, another recent book that makes references to karate grappling and that urges us to include such methods in our training is... Uh, Henry Plee's 1967 book, Karate Beginner to Black Belt. Now in the book, Plee, who was one of the pioneers of karate in Europe, he wrote, uh, One must not lose sight of the fact that karate is all in fighting. Everything is allowed. This is why karate is based on blows delivered with the hand, the foot, the head or the knee. Equally permissible are strangulations, throwing techniques and locks. Uh, Igami, in his 1975 book, The Heart of Karate Do, also wrote about the uh, neglect of karate's grappling methods. You know, Agami wrote, he said, there are also throwing techniques in karate. And then he goes on, throwing techniques were practiced in my day, and I recommend that you reconsider them. So are throws karate techniques? Now, if you're talking about the karate of the past, then the answer's an emphatic Yes. However, if you're talking about the karate of today, it would be fair to say that not all versions of karate include 
throws, joint locks, strangulation techniques, etc. Um, so that leads us to our second conclusion, right? which is that techniques which were once part of karate can fall out of practice to the point where, to some at least, they are no longer considered to be karate techniques. It would therefore seem that what constitutes a karate technique is very fluid and has no firm definition, you know, which is what you'd expect when you look at the, the art itself. Karate was a label given to an ever-evolving fusion of Chinese, Okinawan, and Japanese martial arts and training methods. There was a point when the systems that became karate were not known as karate, nor were they considered as such. However, once the label has been applied, then karate it has become. It's also important to note that the process of blending and evolution that gave rise to karate has not stopped. The cultural and technical influence of the Western martial arts can also be seen. I mean, the footwork of boxing has now uh, become a com commonly practiced part of karate. That kind of uh, footwork we don't see in the traditional forms because it's not relevant to that close-range conflict. And we also see like Western training methods such as focus pads, the heavy bag and so on. I mean, they've largely superseded the traditional makiwara. Now, of course, the makiwara has its place, but the heavy bag and focus mitts and so on are far more realistic and versatile ways of training. And I think it'd be fair to say that in most dojo, what started out as boxing equipment is now way more common in karate than the makiwara. Now, now, even the shift from martial skill as an end in itself, so jitsu, to martial arts as a vehicle for personal challenge and self-improvement, do, is, that's in part due to Western influence. The link between sport, physical education and character was central to the ethos of parts of the English education system. And Kano, the founder of judo, was said to have influenced by this idea. And Anko Itosu, the creator of the Pinan Hiankatas, one of Funakoshi's teachers, uh, and also one of um, uh, Mabuni's teachers, he makes direct reference to this in his Ten Precepts of Karate. In his second precept, he states... Remember the words attributed to the Duke of Wellington after he defeated Napoleon. Today's battle was won on the playing fields of our schools. So here we see him acknowledging and trying to promote karate on the idea that uh, by doing it with, for the school children, it produces strong and healthy um, adults, you know, who will, of course, you know, be used to the, the, the military and be of strong character. Um, so karate always was a fluid system that would appropriate whatever uh, proved to be effective and, and wherever it originated from. The next topic I'd like to discuss is the idea that one art can own a specific technique. The way this argument commonly goes is that a given system originates a method which is then diffused to all of the systems. You know, I frequently have people ask, me, you know, how come all these judo, jujitsu, wrestling, wing chun, etc. methods found their way into karate? Now, the very question takes for granted two falsehoods. Uh, falsehood one, martial methods are only created once. Falsehood two, these uniquely created methods are then diffused to other systems. When discussing this unique origin myth, I normally point to the example of the bone arrow. There is not a culture in existence that has not found the bow and arrow to be an efficient and effective way to hunt animals and kill your enemies from a distance. 
It was not a case of a single person or group coming up with the idea and then going on a world tour to explain the methods to all other peoples. They all worked it out independently. Now, I recall once watching a documentary on the martial arts of the ancient Greeks. And during this documentary, they seriously proposed the hypothesis that the one-armed shoulder throw, which was, of course, uniquely developed by the Greeks, could have found its way into Japanese judo or jiu-jitsu via the campaigns of Alexander the Great. <laughs> I, mean, I would suggest that a simpler and far more likely hypothesis is that the common problems of combat and the common structure of the human body meant that common methods were arrived at independently of one another. I mean, if you look at like you know the wrestling methods across the world, the Greeks, the Japanese, the Chinese, the Indians, the English, the Vikings, and so on, all arrived at the conclusion that the, the one-armed shoulder throw, or whatever they happened to call it, was a pretty decent way to put a person on the floor. And th that's why we see common methods the world over. Not because of some mythical martial world tour, which in some cases would need to employ time travel as well, but simply because of common problems resulting in common solutions. Can we therefore say that any technique belongs to just one art alone? Now it's very difficult to do that in my view and what is often considered to be new and very often all things which have simply fell out of favour. I mean the Bible tells us there is nothing new under the sun. Now when it comes to martial arts, the renowned martial artist, historian and um, author Don Drager, he made a little addition. He said, there's nothing new under the sun, except the very old. Now, I think he hit the nail on the head with that statement. Now, sure, you know, the technology of warfare is moving on at an incredible pace. Who would want to enter a modern war zone in armour on horseback, armed with a spear and a shield? <laughs> you wouldn't want to. But when it comes to close-ranged unarmed combat, or combat with a person armed with a blade or a clubbing weapon, that things are largely the same as they have been for thousands of years. It's inconceivable that someone could uh, ever come up with something that has never before been considered by the untold generations that have came before. Now, aside from military, uh, military technology and advancing weaponry, the other exception could be in combat sports. So if you invent a new combat sport, a new set of rules, then new things will be developed to meet those objectives. However, when it comes to self-protection, I'm totally with Don Drager. There's nothing new under the sun except the very old. Um, so, while we're touching on combat sports, you know, MMA would seem to be the newest thing there is, right? You know? However, it does bear a close resemblance to all other all-in rule sets, such as the Greek um, Pankration, which was an Olympic event from around 650 BC. So, it's not new, but it's over two and a half thousand years old. And you want to know something else, right? The philosopher Plato, who was also an accomplished wrestler, he criticised the Pankration of his day, saying that they spent far too much time on the ground, and therefore he felt it was not a suitable preparation for war. <laughs> so even the arguments we have in the martial arts are as old as the hills. Um, there truly is nothing new under the sun. Now, once a martial art commits to being holistic, as opposed to specialising a specific skill set, then we naturally see a lot of commonality. Years ago, I was once assisting uh, Peter Considine, ninth, uh, ninth Dan, teaching a seminar. And Peter got myself, and a kickboxer, my friend Peter, and a tie boxer, my friend Danny, to demonstrate a variety of methods on the pads. Uh, and when we were finished, Peter asked the assembled masses, there was around 200 students, I think, 
what the key difference was between the karate, the kickboxing, and the Thai boxing techniques they'd just seen. And the universal conclusion was that the main difference was the clothing we were wearing. <laughs> I had a gi on, so that made it karate. Uh, Danny did similar things with tie shorts on, but it was therefore tie boxing. Peter was wearing kickboxing trousers, and so that made it kickboxing. You know, so, I mean, all of this leads us to our third conclusion, that it's almost impossible to say with accuracy that a given method belongs exclusively to a given art. Karate doesn't own any techniques, and neither does any other art. They are simply techniques that are trained within that system. So let's quickly look at again at our three main points. So the first one was, techniques which were not a part of karate can be adapted into karate and can become core karate techniques. The second one, techniques which were once part of karate can fall out of practice to the point where, to some at least, they are no longer considered to be karate techniques. And thirdly, it's almost impossible to say with accuracy that a given method belongs to a given art. When we put all three of these together, we can see that a karate technique is simply one that is practiced within a system that goes by the label of karate. Things that were not karate techniques now are. Things that were karate techniques are now not, in some quarters. And nothing truly exclusively belongs to karate anyway. You know, karate is constantly evolving and changing, and that's just how it should be. Uh, as Gichin Funakoshi wrote, he said, uh, times change, the world changes, and obviously the martial arts must change too. The karate that high school students practice today is not the same karate that was practiced even as recently as 10 years ago. And it's a long way indeed from the karate I learned when I was a child in Okinawa. You know, evolution and change has always been part of it. Now, and at this point in karate's history, what we're generally seeing is return to the older version of the art. We see lots of people dissecting the kata and, and looking at the, those methods within it. But we're also combining that with a fusion of modern training methods and an exchange of martial information that the information age makes unparalleled. Now, what ultimately makes a technique a karate technique is the fact that it is fully integrated into the wider mythology of karate. It is not being on some list that makes a technique part of karate. It is the fact that it is trained and utilized as part of the whole. Karate is not a collection of techniques, but a fusion and integration of innumerable techniques, all connected by a web of common combative principles. Any technique can be a karate technique, once it has been correctly assimilated into the wider training ethos. Karate is not a limited or stunted art. It is limitless and ever-growing. Karate is simultaneously a modern and an old art, and for me, that's part of its appeal. It has strong roots and a strong tradition, but it's also vibrant, alive, and ever-changing, or at least it should be. The karate that has been passed on to us is not dead and unchanging, but alive and growing. This generation has an obligation to do what all other generations before it have done. We need to support and encourage that growth and take care of it. Uh, take care of all the new branches as they grow. And we also need to cut back the ones that need it for the overall health of the art. We should not try to keep the tree of karate, if we can use that analogy, as it is. Because once a tree stops growing, it starts to die and then it rots. 
It is the care and encouragement of new branches and the pruning away of dead ones that will keep karate strong. You know, so I'll give the final words to Gichin Funakoshi. You know, as the great man said, times change, the world changes, and obviously the martial arts must change too. Well, thank you very much for listening. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed that. Uh, just a couple of quick things to mention. Uh, firstly, uh, remember to pop along to the website, uh, have a look at how we're having a look at uh, Cypher, a collective look at it, and we'll be doing that obviously with other Kata too. So check that out and uh, be great if you'd like to play your part in that. Um, also, a quick thank you to all the people who've been at all the seminars recently. They've been, you know, great turnouts. We've had loads of fun at them. I really, really uh, appreciate everyone organising them and showing up. Um, before the year's out, I'm back in Denmark, Scotland, Norway, and the USA, North Carolina as well. And then that's it for 2014. But um, 2015, we're already fully booked for that uh, uh, for that year, so I'm sure to be near you at some point, and obviously be great to, to meet up with you if you can make it. So if you pop along to the website, look at seminar dates, you can see the details there, and you can also, of course, be kept abreast of everything that's happening by subscribing to the newsletters. So thank you once again for your support of this podcast. I really appreciate, you know, you're listening in regularly and, and telling people about them and getting others to listen. Um, I, I really do appreciate all the support. So until next month, um, take care and I'll speak to you soon. Thanks very much. Bye.